your ballots in the mail this week? Got your ballots? Um, just so you know, personally, I hate the fact that you got them in the mail. But uh, here's what I would like to suggest to you, okay? This is just me strongly urging you, like a, I don't know, like a voice from the Lord or something. But don't, don't mail your ballots back in, please. Don't do that. Uh, the chances of, of uh, corruption and brokenness and chain of command issues are, are major, okay? Don't mail your ballots. Here's, here's one of the ways you can tell. If you say, well, is it really that big of a deal? Here's, here's, do this test. It's a personal test. Um, take $500 cash, not a check, cash, and mail it to yourself. Is that a good idea? You like that idea? Do you trust that idea? So don't mail in your ballots. And here's another thing. Don't take them to the drop boxes. You see um, ballot drop boxes? Don't take them to the drop boxes. On June 28th, take them to the actual voting place. Hand them in in person in the voting place. You can fill it out today, but don't, but don't just mail it in or take it to the drop boxes. Um, the, the drop boxes are very unsecure. They, they, we, there's, there's video of people going and breaking those open and taking ballots out. Okay, um, so, so be thinking about this. I know, I know I've picked on some of this stuff before, but guys, when we come across, when we can have this whole um, uh, debacle that they call the January 6th commission thing, I'm telling you, that was a big crock of bull. It was a lie, all right? Don't trust this stuff. We are not the America we were 20, 30 years ago. We're not. We have changed, and, you, and, and we are broken, and we are corrupt. And this stuff is really, uh, it's really it's important. Here, here's another thing. As a Christian, I think you have a moral obligation to vote. Okay, vote your conscience. Vote what you think that God is telling you. Um, if you're in my district, I have a suggestion. But, <clears throat> but I'm not allowed to say that here now. But here's the thing. Vote. Okay? Don't, don't. Shh. Shh. So, well, I'm sorry. Did somebody say something? What'd you say? <clears throat> no. Um, but here's the thing. Let, let's not play. Let's not play around with something as 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 tenuous as our our freedoms and our country and our republic. Okay, do this stuff, guys. Vote for this stuff. You don't like that one? Okay. <clears throat> Am I dressed okay? All right. So here's something I've been saying for quite a few months now, and I want to continue with this, because um, now we're starting to see some things in the news. They, they, Satan wasn't done after the pandemic. Um, Satan is trying to tear us apart as a people, as a country. He's trying to destroy us. And the control and the manipulation through the pandemic and the, the whole, we, you know, the, we're all dying of COVID lie that was happening. This is, they're going to try this again. I've been mentioning this, that I think monkeypox is going to be the, the next one that's coming up. Please talk to people about the whole mask issue. issue. And um, if you have places that you, are, that you patronize, restaurants, businesses that you patronize regularly, talk to the management and tell them when the next mask thing comes down, don't do it. Just don't do it. And let's say, well, with the government, don't do it. Okay, there were places, not a lot, but there were places throughout Springs that didn't enforce this stuff. I walked into a gun store, I won't tell you which one, but I walked into a gun store and nobody in there was wearing masks. And, um, and I had mine in my pocket because that's where I always start. I make them say it to me, right? And I, and I looked around and he said, what are you looking for? I said, no mask. He said, we're a gun store. <laughs> I was like, gotcha. So, so just be thinking about that stuff, all right? It is uh, my privilege this, inter- this morning to introduce to you um, Joel Richardson. I, I really, he and I went and hung out last night, and I really got to know uh, him a lot better, and um, I feel like we're almost dating now. It was, um, it was solid. Um, we did. We stayed till that place. We shut the place down. We didn't leave till like 9.05, and, uh, but I, I, uh, I really enjoy his heart, his mind, his theological mind. This is why I do pay a lot of attention to him. That's why I listen to his studies. Um, and, uh, and, and the whole FAI group, I don't think we actually mentioned that in first service, but that whole thing, and he can tell you what he wants to about that. But um, I, I really do appreciate the, that, 
that he, he gets in the Bible and he doesn't just accept what anybody else is saying. He, he studies it out himself. And uh, that's why I, I, I have for years um, uh, followed him, listened to him, watched his teachings. I've been mentioning this for a long time here, that, uh, that the Islamic Antichrist, one of the books out there on the table, really um, changed my thinking more than probably any book that I've read in the last 10 to 15 years. Easy. Because I knew there were some missing gaps, and the missing gaps were it's not Western approach, it's Eastern approach, Middle Eastern approach, and that was the key. And, uh, and so I do appreciate this. He also has those books out there. You, they're for free, but, um, but he will take donations. And so our response is, well, let me give you a donation. It's not sweet, a free book. Okay, so, so donate. And if you say, well, I'm not really a reader, then you can just donate, you understand the point, all right? So, so uh, support what he's doing. Support um, this. After, after he speaks this morning, you'll want both books. Without him even talking about the books, you'll like them. So, so I think I've covered everything, Joel. Is there anything else you would like me to say about you? Is there anything specific? No? You're good? Um, he's much taller than I thought. I thought he was like four and a half feet tall on the video. But, but uh, without anything else, uh, it's my privilege to introduce you to Joel Richardson. That was quick. That was quick. He's much taller than I, th I previously thought he was four and a half feet. When I was a kid, I, I was super, super short, and um, I literally used to pray before I even was a believer. I used to pray, Lord, please let me just at least be average. <laughs> um, and I almost made it. Um, yeah, I was, yeah, we, yeah, we, the, those servers were like, whoa, those guys are crazy talking. Theology until nine. A little bit uncomfortable with pastors saying that we're dating. Um, and I noticed too, can you all see it? So you've kind of got this like, blue, this one blue light. Does it kind of look like I've got eyeshadow, blue eyeshadow on? It's just subtle. You'll catch it when I turn. So it's really good to be here. I honestly, I had a, we did have an excellent time last night. You guys have a really legitimate, excellent shepherd. Um, I just appreciate Scott's boldness, clarity, it's, it's contagious. Um, I have to teach this week um, and do a session. I'm working with a good friend of mine. We've been working through the book of Revelation for the past year and a half, and I have to do a session on hell. And um, it's, a, you know, it's a very difficult subject to talk about, but it was really good even just talking with, it just emboldened me to say, just preach what the Bible says, you know what I mean? Just kind of just go for it. So that was very encouraging. So um, interesting message this morning. What I've kind of done is um, I've sort of combined two different messages. And so I've combined them for the purpose of just kind of making it a bit interesting. We've actually got some pictures and different things uh, just to keep everyone's attention. Um, but it's an important message, uh, and I have a few purposes, and Hopefully a few extra purposes will be accomplished beyond what I had intended. But really, my hope is that simply by going through some of this, uh, these, these passages and looking at some of the pictures, it will, first of all, awaken all of us to have a bit, bit more of an excitement concerning the Old Testament because the church really tends to be very, um, I won't say Old Testament illiterate, but there's just so much foundational, life-giving material there. And so I hope that it'll awaken some excitement for the Bible, quite frankly. Um, but more than anything, to help us understand the story of redemption as the Lord intended it to be understood. I get so excited about understanding the story, but not just knowing the story, but seeing myself in the story as an integral part of the story that's still unfolding. So, and that's so critical that all of us, we don't just read the story like it's Sunday school. We see ourselves as players in the story. Um, but more than anything, finally, is, you know, it's just, it's, um, it's getting difficult. It's, it's, the world is incredibly discouraging. And um, in the midst, and it's, I, you know, I'd, lo I'd love to say things are going to get better. I don't have tremendous amount of confidence in the natural in that myself, but as the night gets darker, as the world becomes more 
discouraging, depressing, frustrating, annoying, that we have an anchor of hope, we have a vision, we have something that we're looking forward to, that the Lord has given us. It's our inheritance. It's everything. Why are we dying? Why are we laying down our lives? Why are we forgetting about our dreams, our hopes? Why are we sacrificing the temporal passing shallow pleasures of this age? Why are we forsaking these things? Because we have something far better. And so my hope is that you'll fall in love ultimately with that which is in our near future, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that just kicks off everything from there. And so that's ultimately what we're going to talk about. Now, let me just start by saying, um, so I, I do a lot of different things. You know, I partner with a few different ministries that are working throughout the Middle East. I was talking with a brother out in the, in the um, lobby. And, and by the way, pastor said, leave a bit, take books, take them, get rid of them. Because, he, I, mean, I mean, not if it's just going to like sit in your basement, but if you know a friend that won't, take them. Because actually there's quite a bit left out there and you will actually save me money. I won't have to ship them back. So take them, take them for free and uh, grab a couple, I don't care. Um, but uh, so a few years, so I do a lot of drinking. I write books, I work with a few different ministries, but um, as I try, and sometimes I speak at these prophecy conferences. And when you talk about the end times and stuff, for some reason, people think that you're interested in all kinds of stuff, weird stuff. And um, so people often come up to me over the years, and they'll say, like, have you ever seen pictures of this mountain in Saudi Arabia? Like, what do you think? Do you think this? And I'd just be like, I have no idea. Like, I, this is not my area of specialty. But this weird thing would happen over the years. This is like going back, like, 15 years, where just this prayer would kind of rise up in me, and I'll be like, Lord, I ask that you would get me into Saudi Arabia. I, I, I rebuke you. You know, the pictures of Mike Pence with a fly on his hair. Obama's like, the next day on Drudge Report, it says, Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. Did it land like right on my forehead? Did it accent my eyeshadow? Um, so... I would pray this prayer. I'd be like, Lord, I asked you to get me to Saudi Arabia. I want to check this thing out. Like, I don't know anything about it. But I work with the underground church in Iran and Afghanistan. And this thing, and I would say, and I asked that you would help me connect with the underground church in Saudi Arabia. So it was kind of this multi-prompt, but it was a prayer that, it's almost like it, it wasn't mine. And the reason I say that is when the Lord gives you these crazy, bold prayers that don't make sense, pray them. Like, pray him, because sometimes that's just the Holy Spirit prompting you. And so it's a little over four years ago now. My friend Steve is here. Um, he came all the way from um, Colorado Springs. And um, so four years ago, we had the opportunity, um, just out of the blue, another ministry that I sit on. The guy texts me. He goes, hey, you know, this other guy that's on the board was just here. What do you think about these pictures? What do you think about this mountain? And I said, can, can he get me in? Because you couldn't, up until just recently, you couldn't get into Saudi Arabia without a work visa. You can't just go as a tourist. And he's like, he can get you a work visa. Steve is a photographer. I said, yeah, we'll go do some promotional photography for a company. And that was it. And so it's legit. Like, we weren't, like, lying or sneaking. And so we got to go to this mountain for the first time. And it was one of the most life-changing things in my life. Now, that's not the primary purpose of this message, but we're going to look at a bunch of pictures of this particular mountain. And if you don't believe this is the real mountain, don't worry about it. Don't let it distract you from the message. Um, but for me, it's an incredibly faith-inspiring uh, reality. Because here's the thing. Now, let me just say this. From a Christian, your typical average, I'm generalizing, perspective, we kind of look at the Bible this way. If we were to sort of diagram the story of the Bible, we kind of go, okay, the beginning is this big mountain. You've got creation. And it's like a towering mountain. But then it goes from creation kind of just into the Old Testament. It starts slow. And it just slowly, gradually, over a long period of time, ramps up. And then you get to the New Testament. I'm trying to see how he's doing it. And... Um, <laughs> You get to the New Testament, and all of a sudden, we finally get to Jesus, and that's a big deal. And it's just everything ramps, and that's sort of how we diagram the Bible. The reality is, the way the Lord has intended us to understand the story, and the way a Jew or Jesus or the apostles would understand the story is actually a bit different, is at the beginning, you have creation. That's a towering mountain. It's a big mountain. But then you have the Exodus, 
And the reality is the emphasis that the prophets and the Bible and the Lord himself puts on the Exodus, it's even bigger than creation itself. It's a towering, massive, foundational, important reality. And then, you know, in a sense, it, it ramps up from there. And the prophets are constantly pointing back to the Exodus. Remember, remember, don't forget. And then it ramps up to the next major mountain is the first coming of Jesus, which I would argue is, there it is again. He actually landed in my eyeball. Um, And that's even bigger than the Exodus itself, but the ultimate towering mountain, the culmination, the great peak, the Everest of the entire story is the return of Jesus. And the Exodus itself has so much in it that is a foreshadow, that's a dress rehearsal, that's a prelude for the grand finale of the whole story. And so if we want to get excited about the return of Jesus, the marriage supper of the Lamb, everything that we're waiting for and groaning for and yearning for, we have to understand the prophetic foreshadow, the the foundation of the whole story. So I start out with a map. We've got a map. Um, The pizza-shaped peninsula, that's called the Sinai Peninsula, that's just south of Israel. And down there at the bottom, you've got the traditional site of Mount Sinai. About 1,500 years ago, Emperor Justinian declared that this is Mount Sinai, and the Catholic Church sort of put its stamp of approval on that. There's really no archaeological, traditional evidence that that's the real Mount Sinai, but that's been the traditional site. If you go on a tour to Israel, you can go down there into the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula, and and it's a tremendous um, place of history, you know, Christian manuscripts have been preserved there, the Codex Sinaiticus and so forth. But we're going to be talking about the mountain that's on the other side of the, that arm, that extension body of water called the Gulf of Aqaba or the Red Sea. And that other mountain is called Jebel al-Luz, which is the mountain of almonds. And it's over there in modern-day Saudi Arabia. Now, it's important to point out that there, there's a few other different candidates for Mount Sinai. Um, But this is the only mountain of all of the mountains that has a very ancient Jewish tradition that says this is the real Mount Sinai. They say it's the tallest mountain in the land of Midian. That's very important because that's, I mean, scholarly consensus says the land of Midian is over there in modern-day Saudi Arabia. So the story of the Exodus. So Israel coming up out of Egypt, the Lord delivering them out of Egypt, We have to understand that the Lord intended us to understand this story as a romance, which culminates with a betrothal, you could say a marriage covenant at Mount Sinai. So the entire story is a romance, and it culminates with a wedding. Now, I say betrothal because that's more specific, it's more accurate. We today, we have, you get engaged, and that means you're committed to be married, but there's no legal agreement there, and then we just have the wedding. But biblically speaking, in ancient times, you had betrothal ceremony, which is, it really is the marriage covenant. That's when the illegal agreement is made, but there's a sort of window of time before you actually move in together, share the marriage bed, combine all of your resources and so forth, and that's the actual sort of consummation. That's the wedding, if you will, but first you have the betrothal ceremony. It's a little bit different. Okay, so as Israel... Again, according to the word of the Lord, according to the prophecies, the Lord begins pulling them out out of Egypt. It begins with the Passover. And the whole thing starts with, uh, I'm not going to go through it all in great detail, but it really is like the Lord wooing and romancing Israel. Because in so many ways, Israel was, was compromised. They were sort of, sort of in love, wooed by the wonders of Egypt. I mean, this was a magnificent civilization with incredible temples and different things. I'm preaching so fast, their hands are getting tired. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) It was harder when you're doing spontaneous sign language in other languages. Just kidding. So, um, multilingual sign language. Um, So, think of this. The Egyptian gods were like the greatest gods of the time. And this was like Israel's, like, old boyfriend. And God's going, like, I am so much better than your old boyfriend. You know, like, the whole story of the Exodus is God demonstrating his absolute superiority over all of the gods of the earth. Like, 
This is his cry throughout history. Guys, why do you worship all of this pathetic idols? Why do you waste your time with all these, I'm the only one that's worthy of worship in your life. I alone am he. You know, this is like the resounding cry of the Lord. But he does this in a powerful way. So, you know, it starts out, I mean, it doesn't start out, but you, they, get their, they get to the Red Sea. Their back's against the wall. They got their children. They got their elderly. They got all their possessions. And the Navy SEALs of the day, it says Pharaoh's most elite military units are like pinning them down against the sea. And they're like, this is it. We're done. In the natural, all hope is lost. They're like, why did this guy lead us out of Egypt? And then the next morning, they're standing on the other side of the Red Sea. And they're looking back. And the Lord has just ripped the ocean in half. And there's all of the Navy SEALs and Pharaoh's best, and they're dead. And they're like, did this just really happen? And the Lord uses this language throughout that whole narrative. He says, remember what I did when I displayed my wonders with a mighty and outstretched arm. Like, it's actually him going, like, does your old boy, you know, like Hulk Hogan, like, the Lord with his 51-inch pythons, baby. You know, like, it's like he's just demonstrating his utter superiority and how pathetic and weak the gods of this earth are. And then he gets to the other side. I know the Lord's not like Hulk Hogan, but you get the idea. He gets to the other side, and now he demonstrates his compassion, his tenderness, his ability to provide. He provides water from the rock and, and uh, quail and manna and all of these things. But then it gets to what I call the proposal. So again, he woos her. He you know, lures her. He demonstrates. He's strutting. And then you get to Exodus 19, 5 through 6, and this is what I call the proposal. The Lord says, now, here's what I'm proposing. If, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my, and the Hebrew word there is segula. It's a very special word, and it means like the king's most treasured possessions, like the crown jewel. And he goes on, he goes, like all the nations of the earth belong to me. I'm the God of everything. They all belong to me, but you alone will be a kingdom to me of priests. Like, you'll be my representatives. My, like, do you want this very special privilege of being my, sort of like my one and only. It's not my one and only because, again, all the nations belong to him. But you'll be my treasured possession. So there's the proposal. And then Israel, of course, accepts the proposal. So even, you know, in modern marriage rituals or whatever, we have the proposal. And then in verse 7 through 8, after Moses came back, he summoned the elders, the representative elders of the people, and they set before them all that the Lord had just said. And the people said, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. Yes, I, I say yes. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. And then the next major step in this sort of unfolding romance is the mikvah. Now, mikvah is simply a ritual immersion in water, and it's from, it's a very Jewish practice. They had all types of mikvahs, and it's from where we get the practice of baptism. We call it baptism. It's ultimately a mikvah. So just before the covenant is made, Exodus 19, verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready. So they're getting ready for the covenant at Mount Sinai, but beforehand is the mikvah. Now, I threw in a picture here, just pulled it off Google. If you go to online and start searching, if you're Jewish, the Jewish community centers or synagogues throughout the country, many of them have a mikvah room. You reserve a little time slot, and before a Jewish wedding, you're going to go and do a ritual immersion. To this day, the Jews still practice, before the marriage covenant, the ritual cleansing, the mikvah. And there in the story of, of the Exodus, before the covenant at Mount Sinai, the Lord has Israel engage in the ritual marriage cleansing, the mikvah. So all of the key themes are here. And I want to be clear, these are not just things that I'm pulling out, like my rich imagination. The prophets understand it. They refer back to the covenant at Mount Sinai as when Israel was a newlywed and God was a husband. Like, this is not just my idea. It's important for us to understand how the Lord wants us to understand this. And then, well, actually, skip forward two slides to the first picture. The most prevalent, um, unique feature of any Jewish wedding, even today, is the hoopah. The hoopah is simply the canopy, and they take all sorts of different forms. You can really get creative with it and, uh, and so forth. And some 
a lot of Christians will do this as well, but it's really a uniquely, distinctly Jewish practice, um, again, that goes back to ancient times. Now, go back to the slide, verse 16 through 17. So Israel has just followed the Lord in this incredibly, I mean, just awe-inspiring manifestation of the presence of God, this pillar of cloud, which is, you know, it's not just like a cylindrical column, but it actually, well, let's do this. Whoop. It actually was broad enough at the top to give all of the people shade from the heat of the sun. So it would have been like a funnel cloud or an umbrella, and, um, and that probably, it would have took, taken that form. But when it gets to the mountain, and the cloud represents the very presence of God. It says God was in the cloud. It refers to the cloud as the angel of the Lord. And sometimes it's like God goes, he looked down from the cloud. It's really, really strange. It represents God's presence. But when they get to the mountain, the Lord, the cloud settles on the mountain. And the Lord himself becomes the chuppah. The Lord becomes the covering under which the covenant will be made. So it came about on the third day when it was morning, there was thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud blast of the ram's horn, the shofar, the trumpet, so that all the people who are in the camp are trembling. And Moses stood, uh, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. So he brings them from the camp to the foot of the mountain, and it says, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now in the Hebrew, it actually says they stood under the mountain. Now they didn't stand under the mountain. They stood under the chuppah. Okay, so this is, it's under the chuppah that the covenant is made. And then there's, a, if you skip forward two slides, there's just a few neat artistic renderings of that, of the covenant, as the people stand under the glory cloud and they enter into covenant with the Lord at Sinai. It's a beautiful, magnificent reality to envision. And the next major component of a wedding is the ketubah. What is the ketubah? The ketubah is a term still used to this day in Jewish weddings. It's a legal agreement. It is the wedding vows. The wedding vows, today, we, practice, we still practice them, but we tend to have just sort of like these very emotional, sentimental, you know, like, I promise to stand by your side and be a rock in the storm, and, you know, it's like this type of thing. The ketubah, from a Jewish perspective, is like a legal agreement. It's like you go down, like, I agree, I will put the toilet seat down or up. I don't know. I obviously don't have that one right. Um, it's like I legally am obligated to do all of these things. Now, here's the thing. Moses comes, and what we call the law or Torah, that is the wedding vows. It is the legal agreement between God and Israel. Now, let me just say this. In terms of how those within the body of Christ relate to Torah, there's a spectrum and on one side, I'm going to say you have, now when I say Hebrew roots, I don't just mean Messianic Jewish synagogues. I mean Hebrew roots, like the guys, they're like, you know, if you eat pork, you may as well have just be, you may as well just be Hitler, you know. And, uh, you know, like everyone is obligated to keep Torah, you know, worship on Sundays. You guys are basically just pagans, you know, like just Torah, Torah, Torah. It's mandatory for everyone. And then on the other end of the spectrum are those that are just super like, that's the old covenant, that's irrelevant, it's bad. And they'll kind of selectively quote some statements from Paul. And yes, Paul makes some statements like, look, Torah has a purpose, but it's ultimately leading to something. It's not, it's not perfection. Now you go, but wait a minute, Psalm 119 says that your law is perfect. It's perfect in terms of what it was designed for. But if it's absolute perfection, then there would have been no need for Jesus. It was leading us to something. And so I would argue Paul the Apostle is somewhere in the middle of the road. He would be like, Torah is a thing of beauty. It's the wedding vows, for goodness sakes. Like, you don't, you know what I mean? You don't like, after you've been married five years or ten years, you don't be like, ugh. Ugh. You mean I still have to keep these wedding vows? Ugh. You know, like it's not, it should be seen as a thing of beauty. But by the same token... I'm going to eat carnitas, okay? So all day and all night. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm Gentile. I'm not obligated, you know, like, so just to be clear, it's a thing of beauty, but I'm not obligated to, to uh, 
forsake the baking. <laughs> Exodus 24, verse 3. So Moses came and recounted to all the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice. So what happens at the end of the wedding vows? They say, I do. I do. And that's exactly what happened here. And all the words which the Lord has spoken, we do. We will do. We will keep these things. So again, you have these critical components of a Jewish wedding. Now, a uh, quick picture. And I think this is beautiful. I think Christians should do this. Jew, Jewish tradition is they take the wedding vows. They take the ketubah. And there's companies and there's artists, and they'll write it out in calligraphy, like, a, like an illuminated manuscript, and then the bride and the groom sign it, and then the rabbi or the minister signs it, and they frame it and they hang it up in the new, the new marriage house. You know, like, remember this? <laughs> you know, don't forget this. But it's a beautiful thing to display. I really like that. I, I think Christians should practice that more often. And then we get to the part where the bridegroom shows up. This is one of the most awe-inspiring, majestic, crazy, bizarre events in all of human history. We were just read part of it. On the third day, when morning came, there's all these natural phenomena. Thunder, lightning, a thick cloud settles on the mountain, a very loud blast from the shofar, from the ram's horn, so that all the people in the camp are trembling. It's just terrifying. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood there at the foot of the mountain, and the covenant is about to be made. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently, and the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and God answered in thunder. Like, it's just, it's almost too much. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. God came down on the mountain. I made the joke in first service. I've been a Pentecostal charismatic for a long time, which means I've seen some crazy stuff over the years. I've never seen anything like this. Like this is unique in all of human history. Now, let me just say this. I talked about diagramming the story of redemption. When you look at the imagery here, if someone is Old Testament literate, if they grew up reading these things, if they're familiar with this story, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus, John, Peter, Paul, as they describe the return of Jesus, which Paul refers to as our blessed hope, like what are we hoping for? What are we looking forward to? What are we waiting for, yearning for, groaning, panting for? It's the return of Jesus. That is our blessed hope. So when the writers of the New Testament talk about the return of Jesus, they talk about it using all of this language. The God who came down in blazing fire in a thick cloud on the mountain with the blasting of the shofar and the ram's horn and a mighty earthquake is coming back in the clouds in blazing fire with the blasting of the ram's horn, the blasting of the trumpet, and the whole earth will shake. All of the language of the theophany at Sinai is appropriated and applied to the far greater, far more glorious theophany, the appearing of God. The return of Jesus is intended to be a thousand times more majestic, awe-inspiring, and terrifying than what happened at Mount Sinai. Think about that. Now, here's an interesting little tidbit that many of you may not know. But within academia, within you know, scholarship the vast majority don't even believe the exodus ever happened. They go, no, they call it the Jewish myth. And the reason, by the way, they say that is because they say there's no evidence. Well, I would argue because they've been looking in the wrong places. Now that Saudi Arabia's opened, I think it's just a matter of time until they just start freaking out when they start looking at this. But why has the Lord preserved it and protected it and kind of hidden it for so long? Why is he just now bringing it out in these last days? Because, again, when you look at the whole story of the Passover, the Lord is like, remember, remember. Teach these things to your children. Don't forget, don't forget, remember. Why? Why does he want us, why are the prophets constantly pointing back to it? Because when we look at this, we go, this is some crazy stuff. This is like ripping the ocean in half. You know, I've seen, I've seen people f flopping around on the floor. 
I've seen people speaking in tongues. I don't mean to belittle that. But I've never seen the ocean get ripped in half. I've never seen God come down in fire on the mountain. And the Lord goes, by the way, I want you to remember and believe and have confidence in the craziest stuff in the Old Testament, in the Bible, so that you'll have confidence in what is to come. Because, again, why are we dying? Why are we laying down our lives? Why are we sa- because we believe that a divine God-man is going to burst forth from heaven in blazing fire with an army of angels, a mighty earthquake, and then these bodies that just continue to decay as things are now are going to be clothed with immortality. Like that's, if you really think about it, that's a pretty crazy series of things to believe. But the Lord goes, I want you to have confidence in these things, and I'm going to leave all of the evidence concerning the, the prelude, the dress rehearsal, the foreshadow. You think that stuff's crazy? Wait till you see what's coming. It's a thousand times. And do I believe it? Absolutely. With every shred of my being, I believe it. And, and my hope is that this will encourage you all a bit more. So then you have the sealing of the covenant. Verse 4, then Moses arose early in the morning. He built an altar. Where? Right at the foot of the mountain. Deuteronomy tells us a river came down the mountain, right there next to the altar. And on the mountain next to it are 12 pillars. Okay, so Moses builds an altar. The Lord says, make it with uncut stones. And right next to it are 12 pillars. And then he starts sacrificing a bunch of cows. He sent young men of the sons of Israel. They offered burnt offerings, sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings because covenants are sealed with blood. It's just won't get into that, but that's the, the biblical way. Moses took half of the blood, he put it in basins, and he took the other half and he sprinkled it on the altar. So here's a picture, just an artistic rendering of this just by reading the narrative. They've got Moses there and Aaron, and they're sacrificing bulls. You can see the pillars behind them. In this artist's mind, they were like obelisks, you know, like from Egypt or something. And there's Mount Sinai and all the people. And that's just, I don't know, probably from the 1800s or something. Here's a picture of the actual altar that is there at the base of the mountain. Again, the mountain that ancient Jewish tradition says is the real Mount Sinai. And you can see the dry riverbed right next to it. It's about 80 feet long or so. Very long, narrow corridors that lead up to the altar at the end. And when the Saudis excavated the altar at the bottom back in the 90s, they found, quote, a layer of ash, charcoal, and bone fragments and organic matter. Exactly what you would expect to find if it was an altar. The funny thing is they were trying to disprove it because they didn't want all these crazy American evangelicals sneaking into their country. And they're like, oh, whoops, that's what an altar would have. And now here's another picture from the ground. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, you have to be there to really... But here is this long corridor built with uncut stones, exactly as the Bible describes. And the next slide, oh, what a coincidence. There just happens to be a bunch of pillars right next to it. Looky there. It's just a coincidence. Again, you evangelicals are so gullible. Um, You know, yes, there's an altar at the base of the mountain that's the tallest mountain in the land of Midian, which is exactly where Josephus and Philo, ancient Jewish tradition, placed it. And there's the pillars right next to it. But these are just coincidences. You people just hold on to your crazy beliefs and your belief in this mythical wizard in the sky, you know. And I go, really? It's coincidence, coincidence, coincidence. Exodus 24, verse 7. Covenants are unto death. The covenant was made unto death. Moses took the book of the covenant, he reads it aloud again, and all the people go, everything that you've just said, we agree to, we will do. And then he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. Now, in my opinion, what he probably did was sprinkled it on the pillars, which represented the people. Again, I could be wrong. It just This picture of Moses, like a Catholic priest, sprinkling holy water, but it's blood on everyone. Just It's strange, and it's a lot of people, and a lot of cows. I think it was, yeah, I mean, it's just it's strange, but I could be wrong. It says on the people, but I think it was probably on the pillars, which is right next to the altar. And then he said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, the penalty for breaking the covenant is what? Death. When I take communion today, which is to remember the new covenant, I always do this in my head. I say, Lord, this is your blood that was shed 
I'm guilty of your blood on my hands. You wouldn't have had to die if it wasn't for my sins. You were tortured. You willingly subjected yourself to mutilation so that I, your former enemy, could become one of your children. I'm guilty of murder. And it's that same blood that's on my hands that I'm guilty of that cleanses me and makes me clean. So it's kind of like that dual, you know, I'm guilty, I'm not guilty. It's an amazing thing. But, you know, even Paul says, like, we're all, the, the Torah is there to remind us that we are guilty of death. We deserve the death penalty. We deserve, quite frankly, apart from Christ, hell. That's what, we, if we got what we deserve, that's what we would get. We don't deserve eternal bliss and paradise, but he's given it to us as a free gift. Like, there's no religion, philosophy in the world that more perfectly captures the deepest need emotionally and spiritually of the human condition. He has given us eternal paradise as a free gift. You can't earn that. He provided it, he provided it for us. At the end of every wedding is the marriage feast, the marriage supper. Verse 24, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. So Moses, Aaron, and the 70 representative elders of Israel, they come up the mountain, but they worship at a distance. And then he says, But you alone, Moses, you shall come up to the Lord. They shall not come near, but you shall come, come all the way up. So here's what's interesting is scholars... Just by reading the text, by reading the biblical text, they go, the mountain, Mount Sinai, is like the temple. It's a two-tiered mountain. It's like you've got the holy place that's like halfway up, and then you've got the holy of holies. And only Moses, as like the high priest, would go all the way up into the holy of holies. So we're going to look at some pictures because this is interesting. So Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, they went up, and this is just... It's like one of the most mind-boggling passages in the whole Bible. And it says, they saw the God of Israel. Again, with their eyeballs. Like, they saw the God of Israel. And then it's like they can't even, even the scriptures can't quite describe it. Under his feet was something like a pavement of lapis lazuli or cobalt blue. As bright blue as the sky. And then here's the miracle. But God didn't kill them. They saw God. But he didn't raise his hand against them. And then it just summarizes. It says, they saw God and they ate and drank. And they had a feast halfway up on the mountain. They looked up and see this sea of pavement blues. Like they look at, they're looking up at his feet. They're saying, I mean, I don't know exactly what they saw. And then they ate a meal. They ate the covenant sealing meal. Now this is, from a biblical perspective, this is the prophetic foreshadow of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the betrothal supper at Sinai. The marriage supper is on Zion, is in Jerusalem. So what started here culminates. What started at Sinai culminates at Mount Zion. So Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. It's just the glory of the Lord rested. The radiant shining light, like the light of the sun, rests on the mountain. The cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses from the midst of the cloud. To the eyes of the sons of Israel that are down on the ground, the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. The mountain was on fire, a raging inferno. Moses entered walked up into the fire, into the cloud. And as he went up, he was up there for 40 days. Now, here's a picture of the mountain. Now, if this is the real Mount Sinai, there has to be a prominent cave on the face of the mountain because Elijah went to Mount Sinai and he was in the cave, right? So you can kind of see it, that belly button up there. That's about a 45-minute to an hour hike from the base. If you're in good shape, 45 minutes. I mean, if you're like a really good mountain climber, there's really no trails. Um, next slide is a little bit more of a zoomed out, so you can kind of get a feel. And what's interesting is now you can see the peak, the secondary peak back there. Now that secondary peak is well over twice as high. Well, it's actually like three times higher than the first peak that you're seeing, but you can't see it until you step back. Now, when I went with Steve the first time, <laughs> I won't get into that whole story. It took us hours just to get to the cave because we accidentally 
hiked the wrong mountain first. And then we got up and we're like, we hiked it. And then we're like, oh, that's it. <laughs> we have to go down and back up. And it was hot and blah, blah, blah. But we got there to the cave and it, that alone was pretty magnificent. When I went back the second time, we went up over the ridge. And when I got over the ridge, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. So go to the next slide. That is when you get up there, there's a plateau. And it's literally a flat plateau the size of a football field. And I looked at it, and I was like, this is exactly what you would expect to find if this was Mount Sinai. This is where they ate the feast. And then they looked up at the peak, and this is like super wide. So go to the next slide. Now you're kind of standing right at the foot of the mountain. That's about another two, two and a half hour hike. Okay, so, it's, it's, so you guys are from Colorado. It's 8,400 feet to the peak, but the base is pretty close to sea level. So it's quite a beast of a mountain. It's pretty big. Like, it's comparable to hiking, whatever, Estes Park or something. I don't know. I don't know what the name of all the mountains. But then we camped on the plateau that night, and my buddy took this picture. Uh, go to the next slide. Look at that. Is that ridiculous? The, the, and, and we didn't plan it. It was the last night of Sukkot which is the biblical holiday that you're supposed to camp outside and look up and see the stars to remind us that we're just camping here. We're passing through. This is not our permanent home and that God ultimately is going to dwell with us. And I was just like, it was just like, I hate to use the word magical. It was just ridiculous. Then you have the golden calf catastrophe. I'm going to buzz through this real quickly. Go to the first picture. Let me just say this. As opposed to eating the marriage sealing, covenant sealing dinner and seeing God. Down below, Moses is up there in the glory, and they go, hey, let's build an idol and let's cheat on our husband in the middle of the wedding ceremony. And this is like basically what happened. And it's bizarre. And when you actually read the language, they were dancing as they were worshiping this idol, and they engaged in like sexual pagan revelry. It was a, it was a pagan ritual. Now, You've got a picture there, so about 300 yards from the altar of Moses, you've got this big rock outcropping with all these cows carved all over it in petroglyphs. Next slide, there's another picture of a cloud. Next slide is a picture from Egypt, from the tomb of one of the pharaohs. And it's describing, it's a, in pictorial form, the worship of a cow. This is Egyptian religious iconography. Portraying, portraying worship. Now go to the next slide, better picture. So see the person underneath, looks like he's trying to like bench press the cow or, or press the cow. See the person behind the cow holding the tail. I, I'm not going to unpack all of the meaning of the symbolism and imagery, but very specific imagery. Now go to the, now here's the thing, the scholars, all right, there it is. So see the person underneath the cow? The scholars go, oh, you Christians are so gullible. These are just farmers. Farmers put these cows there. They're just pastoral scenes. That has nothing to do with religious worship. That has nothing to do with Israel or Egypt. That's a, whoever carved that, it is, this is Egyptian religious iconography. That's a very specific, and that's not a farmer. That's not how you milk a bull. <laughs> Go to the... Sorry. Go to the next slide. See the person holding the tail? I didn't notice that the first time when I went with Steve. I, you know, you're overwhelmed with stuff. And it's a little stick figure. There's another one. And then here's a picture of me. So there's a whole mural of the cows. And forgive me for this, um, but go to the next slide. I didn't notice this the first time either. These are not your average farmers, okay? This is portraying exactly what the Bible describes. Pagan idolatrous worship, exactly what the word the Bible uses is they ate and drank, they rose up to play. And I'm going, this is exactly what the Bible describes. Okay, um, then I'm going to skip forward to the eschatological wedding, which is our future. Again, this is what I want to leave you with. So, we, so if, you're, if you understand the biblical narrative, you know that the Lord has intended to frame and cast the story of the giving of the covenant at Mount Sinai as a betrothal ceremony. And the prophets fully recognize this. So Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, he uses Exodus language, but then he casts it not on Mount Sinai, but he casts it on Mount Zion. 
in Jerusalem, in Israel. So what began on Sinai culminates with the wedding feast on Mount Zion. And so in the context is the day of the Lord, the end of the age, after Israel is purged and judged and repents and gives themselves fully to the Lord. It says, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a hoopah. The Hebrew word there is hoopah. Most of your translations will say a canopy or a covering. So the language here that Isaiah is using is almost like after Jesus returns, Mount Zion, it's almost like a perpetual wedding celebration. And he takes the imagery of Sinai when God came down on the mountain and he himself became the hoopah. And here is the hoopah on Mount Zion. It's clearly wedding language, but it's yet in the future. And then in Isaiah 25... Verse 6 through 8, I love this passage. It's stupid, but it's just, it's, it's stupid, but it's not stupid. And I'll tell you why. So let me read it. On this mountain, which is Mount Zion, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, will prepare for all the peoples a feast, a banquet, a lavish banquet, a feast. Where? On Mount Zion. And then this is the new CSB translation, Christian Standard Bible. It's a very conservative translation. I'm actually kind of excited about it, but I love this particular verse. The feast will be of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat. So I do apologize to any of you foolish vegetarians in the room. <laughs> but what was funny, too, and I had to point this out, um, in, the, in the announcements, all the real, if you're really a vegetarian, I'm sorry, um, but you will have to repent shortly. So um, in, the, in the announcements, I, it, it did crack me up. The women all get together for the women's hiking group. But the men meet at pastor's house to grill meat, which is just such a pastor thing. Like, I'm too lazy to go to anyone else's house. You guys bring the meat over and we'll fellowship. <laughs> um, and then what was the other one, the other announcement that cracked me up? Um, Oh, there was another one that was funny, too. Um, on this mount, so what is this? This is the marriage supper. This is what Isaiah is talking about. Now, notice this. The betrothal is between God and who? Israel. At Sinai. God and Israel. But what does Isaiah say? On this mountain, the Lord will prepare a choice feast for Israel. For all peoples. It's always been... Israel is just the ambassador, the representative, the light to the Gentiles. But the, the plan has always been to bring all of the crazy relatives in. That's us. It's for all people, the Gentiles. So Jesus comes along, Matthew 8, 10 through 11. And he, he's just seen the faith of the centurion. And Jesus has Isaiah 25 on his mind. He knows the wedding feast is not just for the Jews. And he's like, man, this centurion... This Gentile guy's got amazing faith. He goes, I haven't, truly, I haven't seen such great faith in all of Israel. And he, he's, he's sort of tweaking, he's poking their Israel-centric sensibilities. And he goes, I say to you, many will come from the east and the west. People are going to come all the way from Colorado Springs and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, when he says kingdom of heaven, that's not location up in the sky. It's the kingdom that will be governed by heaven. It's the messianic kingdom where? On Mount Zion. Okay, so that, he's just expounding upon Matthew 25. And then he, again, on the night of Passover, he breaks bread, he, you know, he does this. And the thing that's so amazing about these feasts, these holy days, the feasts and the fasts, is the Lord is such an amazingly intricate poet that he combines dates and numbers with agricultural calendars and the times and the seasons when produce comes forward with prophetic meaning and then Israel's history that would unfold that collides and coordinates with these dates and then their ultimate future prophetic meaning. Like, you cannot make this stuff up. You can't, you can't 
you know, like people go, that's just self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, Jesus planned that he was going to be tortured, mutilated, and murdered on Passover. Like you can't, you can't do that. It's just mind-boggling. So on the night of Passover, Jesus, as the prophetic fulfillment of the Passover lamb, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for, I know it doesn't say it here, but it says it elsewhere, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I'm not going to drink it again until I drink it afresh in my kingdom, in my Father's kingdom. And so what's he talking about? When he will drink it afresh on Mount Zion at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in Corinthians, Paul says, and, and we receive that he said this, as often as you meet together, do this in remembrance of me. What is the Passover? Remember, remember, remember what I did. Remember, don't forget these things, remember. And so the way the Lord has, has ordered this is we look back and we remember in order that we have faith and confidence for the future. We look back at the cross as an example and a reminder of the fact that we're clean and the fact that you can't coordinate this stuff. Like everything that God has said he would do prophetically, he has done. Like he has a tremendous track record. And yes, it's pretty crazy if you're an unbeliever to go, you really believe a Jewish man who's fully God is going to burst forth from heaven in the clouds with an army of angels to save you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we do. But why do we believe it? Because everything he has said he would do, he has done. He is faithful, right? I'm just going to end it with one final verse, and I, I, don't, I just think this is so beautiful. Because we, we say Jesus came as the lamb, but he comes back as a lion, and that's true. He comes back as a divine warrior, but even after he returns, this is amazing. He's Jesus in Luke chapter 12. He says, everybody, you guys, be ready for service and have your lamps lit. Don't fall asleep. Like, if there's a time to fall asleep, it's definitely not now. Have your lamps lit. You're to be like a people waiting eagerly for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and he knocks, you're going to be right there, just ready that they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert, awake when he comes. And then he says this, Truly I tell you, he will get ready. He will have them recline at the table, and then he will come and serve us. One translation says he will gird himself to serve. Even after the divine warrior, the lion from the tribe of Judah, returns and slays his enemies and engages in a very quite frankly, hostile takeover of the planet at the wedding feast on Mount Zion. He's still serving us. And in Philippians, it says, have in yourselves that same attitude. It's just a beautiful picture. So amen. I hope that this helps us. It inspires faith. And I hope that it encourages you all to fall more in love with eager expectation for the marriage supper of the Lamb. As the world melts down around us, becomes more difficult. We have an anchor of hope. We have an anchor on the beach. The storms are going to come, but we have an unmovable, unshakable hope. Amen. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would strengthen us in our spirits for the endurance to finish the race that's ahead of us. We ask that you would encourage us that your joy would be our strength as we fix our eyes on the prize. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness to us. We ask that you would be with us. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Four minutes over. Not acceptable. Uh, we want to pray for Joel before, um, before he goes. And by the way, Joel Richardson is his pen name. I sat with him for three and a half hours last night talking to somebody that's not even his name. I felt, I felt broken inside. Um, we want to pray for him. Does a lot of stuff, engaged in a lot of stuff. We, we believe in that kind of thing around here. Missions, preaching the gospel, witnessing to people. Because that's who we are. It's our DNA. And uh, we want to support that with him. So anybody that wants to gather around us up here, we're going to pray for him. And also we're going to pray for his wife. His wife has uh, some, some uh, very severe medical issues. And, um, and then that affects... 
that affects her emotionally and everything else. And, and we just know that God is bigger, right? So everybody in here, why don't you stand with us? God, we just lift Joel up to you. I thank you for his heart. I thank you for his passion for you and for your word, Lord God. God, drive him deeper into your word every day. And let your amazingness be the fruit of that. And Lord, we're amazed by, we're amazed by your word and, um, and thankful that he came to be with us this morning. So just bless him. God, we ask you to bless him financially also. And, uh, and take care of his wife. Lord, we plead your blood over his wife. We know the same God that parted the water, the same God that is going to come back and get us, is the same God that can heal us in the middle. And so, Jesus, we ask you to do this very thing. Cover her with your blood. Heal her body. Bring the peace of Philippians 4 into her mind and her heart through you, Jesus. We pray this. We believe this. And we trust you with everything. We thank you so much. Lord, I ask you to bless everybody here with your Holy Spirit and just the knowledge that, that you are in charge and that they can accomplish amazing things through you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Don't forget to grab his books. Apparently you're supposed to take 10 or 12 each. I don't know what it means, but definitely donate. Before noon tomorrow, God's going to give you the chance to tell somebody about Jesus. Take that opportunity. God will honor that in your life. It's a guarantee. We will see you Wednesday night. Have a great rest of your afternoon.